0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the New Books Network. I'm your host, Roxanne Penchassi. My guests today are Laura Heffernan and Rachel Burma, the authors of The Teaching Archive, A New History for Literary Study. And the book was published by the University of Chicago Press in 2021. Hi there, Laura and Rachel. Hi. Hi, Roxanne. We're so happy to be here. Yeah. Thank you so much for agreeing to speak with me about this truly wonderful book. i just so enjoyed reading it. And I'm really excited to talk to you both about it. I wonder if we might just begin by having each of you tell us a little bit about where you're joining this conversation from, where you both do your
1: reading, writing, and of course, teaching. Laura, do you want to get us started? Sure. I'm coming to you from Jacksonville, Florida, which is up in the northeast corner of the state um, on the Atlantic Ocean. It's We're having really beautiful weather right now. It's like 70 three degrees out, and um, a pretty cloudless sky. I teach at the University of North Florida. Our department is um, pretty small. I teach 19th and 20th century literary history classes. Um, We have an MA program, Hmm. um, so I teach undergrads and MA students, and I do a lot of my writing either in my office at work or in my office at home, uh, which is where I am now. Great. Rachel? Rachel? Um, I also am in
2: my office at home in West Philadelphia. Um, I work at Swarthmore College, which is about 20 minutes southwest of West Philadelphia. Uh, I was hired to teach 19th century British and history of the novel. Um, And I do that, but I also teach a lot about the history and future of higher education Directs a teeny tiny little research institute about liberal arts education.
0: Yeah. So normally in these interviews, I don't really introduce myself beyond saying my name, but I am going to say a couple of words just about like why I wanted to interview you both, particularly because I'm no kind of literary scholar. <laughs> um, so I'm a historian, uh, and I'm you know it's weird whenever I say I'm a historian. Like I try not to begin sentences ever with as a historian, but I am one technically I was trained as a historian. I'm a cultural historian. I also, you know, part of that is that includes thinking and writing about literature sometimes, and for sure, drawing on the work of literary scholars. So I'm, I'm a fan of your discipline, I guess. And when I saw the announcement, one of the many announcements, I'm sure, for the book on Twitter, I got really excited because, you know, I'm a teacher who regularly needs and loves to think about pedagogy, so I just loved this idea, the idea for the book, and the idea of talking with both of you about this new history for literary studies. I guess my first question for each both of you is, like, how did this happen? (laughs) Where did this book, you know, come from? I don't know who wants to start. Rachel, do you want to start with that? So I think
2: the real origin, we usually date the origin of the book to and the dedication of the book kind of marks this to a class that we were teaching at the same time. Laura at Penn, and me at Swarthmore on the history of literary studies. I think I was teaching first years, and Laura was, was teaching juniors juniors and seniors. And we were teaching, you know, starting with IA Richards and moving through Cleop Brooks and mid-century. And Laura, I don't remember if we were kind of ending up with new historicism and then with Eve Sedgwick. I think we were, we were finishing with Eve Sedgwick and touching feeling at that time. This is a long, like 15 years ago. And we really just began realizing that our experience of our own teaching and our experience of the profession and our experience of our own research didn't match the kind of very rigid history of this school and then that school and then this school and then that school. (laughs) Um, Even though in many ways we've been trained by new historicists. And so I thought, well, let's take you know, the well-wrought urn, what did Cleon Brooks's classroom actually look like? And we went to Yale, to the Beinecke, and looked at his papers. And what Cleonth Brooks was doing in his classroom when he was teaching modern poetry, as we describe in our book, did involve a little bit of the kind of close reading that we uh, know of from the well-wrought urn. But it was interwoven with class discussions and current events and it was much less perfect and formalized and <laughs> much less charismatic than you might than you might think so that that was sort of the beginning we thought how does how does this moment of mid century new criticism that's really always being framed as like the height of literary studies or the whole problem with literary studies depending on who you are how did that actually <laughs> look in the classroom and it looked so different and so much more interesting and teaching with so much more varied even in the Brooks's classroom at Yale. And so that was kind of the beginning of the project.
1: Laura, do you want to? Yeah, that's pretty much how I remember it. I actually remember being at the bar. I think we were <laughs> out at the bar, maybe at Locust Bar. And I remember you saying, like, everybody talks about like they know how the new critics taught or they all everybody talks about new critical teaching but did they actually teach that way like what, <laughs> you know what what did they actually do in their classes um was it all perfect close readings and then yes we went up to Yale um and wrote that first paper and the collaboration was really easy from there because you know when you are going to find out something in the archive and you you know discover it together and try to make sense of it together um the writing comes easier um, because you've gone through the whole discovery process. Instead of trying to sort of mash together what you already know as mm-hmm. you're sitting down to write, you know, you're actually trying to explain as a collaborative unit kind of what you now know, what you just found out.
2: That's so funny because I absolutely remember Laura being the person in the bar and we were sitting at the, <laughs> lo- the Locust Bar and the Locust Bar is beloved but disgusting. <laughs>
0: Is it, is it sorry is it the locust
2: or the locust locust it's on locust street oh okay but you, it also makes you think of a plague of locusts
0: yeah yeah that's why yeah. I was. it like, sounds disgusting um, <laughs> um okay so I feel really duh asking this but were you friends before and can you say a little bit more about you were teaching the same class at different institutions at the same time like could you just I I, I didn't catch the whole like same class teaching thing and how you knew each other before this. Like you were in the same city. I got that.
1: Um, Yeah, we we went to grad school together um, and we started we started at the same time. um, And actually, Elaine Friedgood introduced us. Um, She had taught both of us as undergraduates at separate institutions. um, And when we both started the program at the same time, she had us over. And introduced us to each other, um, but we would have met anyhow because we had a lot of classes together for those first few years. Rachel started out as an early modernist and then became a Victorianist, um, and I was a modernist. So we didn't, you know, we didn't work with the same people really, um, and we didn't train in the exact same way. But we both did some very pen things, like attend the material text seminar that Peter Stallybrass had run for many years. Um, so we had some enough of a kind of institutional overlap that, you know, there were things about how we worked that we didn't need to true up when we started working together, but we, we had separate fields and separate mentors and separate dissertation committees and things like that. And yeah, we were, we were good friends. So yeah, um, spending more time together was not a problem. (laughs) (laughs) Um,
0: so at you know, a very basic level, this is a history of, of your discipline, of the discipline of English and literary studies. And I guess I want to ask you about the ways that, and I know the whole book is about this, so it's a huge question, but just sort of really quickly before we dive in further, how this book is a, a kind of a revision or a new, a new history for literary studies. What's the newness of it, and, and, and what are the sort of key points or highlights that you'd want listeners and potential readers to be aware of in terms of the departure that this book is making from existing previous histories of the discipline?
2: Yeah. um, So most histories of literary study focus on research. um, And the more time we spent looking at what literary studies looked like in classrooms instead of on the page of journal articles or even in graduate seminars, the more we came to realize that more literary studies was happening in classrooms, you know, in undergraduate classrooms or in classrooms in institutions that aren't even degree granting than was happening in, you know, the profession defined as kind of the production of published published research and mm-hmm. the apparatus around it. So it felt, I think part of it felt like a reorientation in the place that literary studies really was. <laughs> and right. that I think became more and more important to us and became more and more important to us too, in you know the context that, that we all know about and struggle with where more and more teachers of literature and teachers of humanities disciplines and actually teachers in higher education broadly don't have working conditions that let them, that support research as well, or even support their teaching very well, or support the two together, which is another one of the key points of the book, which is that teaching and research, even though the modern research university has done its best to pry them apart in the 20th mm-hmm. century, have really always happened together in practice.
1: Laura, do you want to add to that? Um, yeah, I think, I mean, the other thing we we really try to do is, I mean, Rachel alluded to this, but just to draw in it many more institutions than, than usually play a role in um, how we tell the history of the discipline. So we were just kind of interested in capturing that much uh, bigger picture of um, the people who have taught at, you know, non-private, not elite universities. Um, it's, the book can't really offer full coverage, you know, we're, we're focused on specific classes. So we cover about 11 classes, Mm -hmm. um, in the course of the book, but, um, we tried to, in the range of classes that we describe really gesture towards, um, what literary studies has looked like in those other kinds of institutions, um, and how that might change the, the picture or the story that we tell about the disciplines past. And how
0: did you choose the teachers? How did you, I mean, you, told the story there a little bit about the first one um and you know there were some that came up as you were teaching this you're both teaching this course but how did you come to the eventual how many am I counting 10 about 10 figures (laughs) yeah 10 central figures uh 20th century figures that, that you deal with?
1: Well, our constraints around that were largely around finding good archives. So, mm-hmm. you know, we looked at many, many more teachers than we ended up writing about in the book. We looked at their papers, but it's already the case that only a, a small fraction of the 20th century teaching <laughs> archive has been collected and saved mm-hmm. um, and archived. And so we spent a lot of time, years worth of time, writing to different special collections and archives, um, writing to individual scholars, trying to just get a kind of map of where these papers exist and um, what kind of, you know, how robust the collection is at each place. And then we would schedule actual visits to go look and see what was there. And sometimes, you know, we found something that made us feel confident that we could understand and tell the story of a class that had been taught. But other times, we would go and, the you know, the papers would be fascinating, but just wouldn't really cohere into a picture that we could reconstruct for a chapter like we wanted to write. So mm-hmm. a couple of the figures in the book, T.S. Eliot, I. Richards, Cleanth Brooks, those are some of the core figures for literary study. They come up again and again. They're cited as kind of... The founders of the discipline, Um, they're credited with making kind of foundational aesthetic theories or foundational pedagogical practices of close reading and formalist attention to to literature. Mm. So we knew we wanted to go and look at them and kind of see what they were like as teachers Um, But then other figures in the book, like Josephine Miles, um, we ended up writing about because the papers that Berkeley has kept from her decades worth of teaching uh, first year writing were just so compelling. There are so many of them. She was such an interesting scholar um, and poet and teacher. Um, And there was just so much there to write about other figures in the book, even though they're retrospectively major people in the field and were in their time, they weren't necessarily people that we knew we wanted to write about kind of from the get-go. Rachel, did you want to chime in? Yeah, that
2: was, um, it's funny just because it is a, a kind of history of the discipline or a part of the history of the discipline, but there's no, almost because of that, You can't. We couldn't go to the Huntington or the Folger. There isn't a major special collections that has been collecting teaching papers, which sounds obvious, you know, but but it's also true. So a lot of the limitation too was, I mean, partly how long our editor would let the book be. (laughs) We had some (laughs) words about that, (laughs) all in good humor, but also just the amount of travel. You know, I mean, we both teach a fair amount, did we both work a fair amount at our, own, at our own institutions. We had some great support for this book from both of our institutions and from ACLS, but still, I think that was also a constraint.
0: You both mentioned, you know, constraints and limitations, but, you know, reading it, I was just so impressed, and just even looked like I'm staring at the table of contents right now. I'm so impressed by like the range in all sorts of ways, right, in terms of the the fame, especially to an outsider like me, of, you know, the, the scholars and figures that, that you're dealing with here in terms of like the diversity of the institutions where these people uh, worked, taught, you know, the book covers and manages through these teachers and scholars to raise all kinds of issues about, well, about gendered students, about professors about the content about canon about identity about ideology all of these things and I guess yeah I just I wanted to ask how serendipitous that was at those people coming together how much you think that's just like built into both Mm -hmm. of you as you do your work and or whether there were moments where one or both of you thought oh we've got to try to cover this area or or thing like was it was the access to teaching papers and the existence of them kind of the primary uh Thing that shaped who's in this book or were there other kinds of things that you felt like you wanted to make sure the book did or mm. d- and didn't replicate in terms of other disciplinary histories does that make sense
2: yeah yeah that definitely makes sense um i'm trying to reconstruct i think we <laughs> since we had started with Cleonth brooks and with new criticism and then we had a moment of of thinking i mean we have a whole chapter on um whims at and Beardsley <laughs> probably of work and we didn't spend a ton of time but right Laura we spent a bit <laughs> of, um that didn't we never really finished writing it or made it in because we thought okay well we could just we could just do this for all the new critics and that would be really interesting and then we thought mm, would that really <laughs> is that really the the new history for the discipline of literary studies that we need or want right now is that you know really representative and we thought no we, for example, should think about some women, and you know, because they're often <laughs> not represented at being at the core of the discipline of literary studies at all until the seventies. Which is another big, you know, point the book makes is that um, even though lots of different kinds of people are excluded from elite white institutions and excluded from power. In the discipline of literary studies until the 70s. All kinds of, you know, women are teaching, um, Black scholars are teaching, mm-hmm. and they're teaching all kinds of literature that we don't think about as being the canon in their classrooms for the whole 20th century. And we wanted to reflect that, right? in thinking about Caroline Spurgeon and thinking about Edith Ricker and thinking about Jay Saunders Redding. Um, we wanted to find out how true that was and You know, it turned out to be very true and we wanted the book to reflect that.
1: Laura, what else
2: would you say about this?
1: I mean, I I think we were retrospective, we were a bit surprised, I think, at how many women we found teaching Mm -hmm. in English departments in the first half of the 20th century. That's not a fact that or like material reality that had been part of our disciplinary imaginary at all. But it it certainly was the case that it was quite common for women to be teaching in English departments um, at all kinds of universities for the first half of the 20th century. So, you know, I think that that even comes up, I think people wonder when they see our early chapters on Spurgeon, on Edith Rickard at the University of Chicago, and Miles, you know, starts teaching in the 1930s at Berkeley, Mm
0: -hmm. whether
1: we've kind of cherry picked the evidence here. And I'd say, you know, our experience of going and looking around, um, and this could be also about May, perhaps women being more conscious of keeping their papers or having having a kind of having a kind of more self conscious approach to to archiving, but there was plenty to choose from there, um, and there were other women that we could have easily included. We knew that we wanted to uh, write about a scholar who was teaching at an HBCU, mm-hmm. and there too, I mean, of course, there's like so many to choose from. And there's so many collections that have been really well kept. And we have ended up just including a long chapter on Jay Saunders Redding, whose career really interestingly kind of traverses a number of different kinds of institutions and, you know, moves from the 1940s up through the 1970s. Um, and so so there um, you know, there too. It's a sort of a case where we have one one figure in there, but there's so many more. That we could have included,
2: yeah, and just it's helpful because Redding's own work gives you kind of a sense of all the other kinds of work, you know. So I think that chapter gives you a little bit of a sense of all the other figures that historically black colleges that you might mm-hmm. that you might imagine, and other people, you know, Jelani favors, and a lot of other people are doing. You know, there is more and more interest in scholarship about HBCs history. We think now, mm-hmm. so. That's exciting.
0: Just going back for a second to the to the papers thing and women in archives. There's this funny moment in the in I think it's in the introduction where where you all say something about how your friends when you when they learned you were doing this project they were like I'm dumping all of my <laughs> stuff and I and I and I'm gonna admit that I mean my teaching archive I mean that's a really awesome word for what is a total mess of post-its and i don't know files that have the same name like the number of times i have to redo a lecture because i can't find it on whichever laptop i last put it on or like so i i just i i definitely both felt the panic of someone who's like i really hope no one ever looks at but also that i don't have that that record right I don't really want to kind of fixate on like how representative all of this mm-hmm. is, because I do think the book represents in so many different ways that to pick on what it doesn't catch or, or misses in terms of the practicalities of all those teachers who didn't keep track or whatever. I, I, I don't think that's, but I, I kept thinking about this. Like if I was going to teach this book in my historical methods or historiography class, I was thinking about, like, is this a history from below? Mm. Is it a labor history? How is it like an intellectual and labor history? Is that right for me to impose those things? Like to say, this is a a more democratic history of the discipline than has existed before.
1: Yeah, I I love that formulation of it being a labor history that is also an intellectual history. (laughs) I think that's, that's definitely what we were trying to write here, you know, just a sense of all of the, all of the work, you know, that has gone into the discipline in in classrooms being at the core of of the discipline's identity. And I think it's really interesting, you know, I think about my own teaching archive, and I feel the same way, like, I mean, I would shudder to (laughs) think that anybody would look at it, but also I have no idea how they'd make any sense of it because, you know, it was so constrained by what I needed to teach year to year in terms of our departmental offerings. So there's a way in which teaching archives are also just really stories of particular institutions and Mm -hmm. institutional needs and who else is on faculty and who's on leave right now and so on. Um, They'd also find so many um, artifacts in my archive that aren't actually mine. You know, they'd find Rachel's handout on Frederick Jameson's, the political unconscious, like reading guide for students that I, you know, borrowed in 2002 and made some slight changes to. And I try to keep track of like, you know, crediting people for stuff, but you know, my archive is obviously also just the record of so many other minds and so many other bits of, of work. And people are so generous with with sharing their teaching materials in a way that that there's not really a space for us to do that in terms of research and scholarship. Right. So I think there's this way in which you know the teaching archive kind of gets at these internecine genealogies, like intellectual histories that aren't readily apparent or recognizable from from scholarship, um, and that gets at the kind of way in which we have all. Approach to the problem of the labor of teaching as a collective, you know, that mm-hmm. we've um, sort of experienced our collectivity in a different way in relation to classroom teaching um, than we have in in terms of scholarship. I, I think of it also just even though we do kind of tell the story of this through specific figures, um, you know, each chapter profiles just one or two teachers. Um, what we find in their materials hopefully opens up to this like broader panorama of the institutions in which they work, the students who demanded different things of them within mm-hmm. the space of a semester or classroom hour, um, the ways in which they drew on their own like history as students. You know, And in, in Carolyn Spurgeon's Teaching Notebooks, she's keeping records of and even just copying full passages from lectures that she took as a student with W.P. Kerr. So I think it's just a really fascinating space from which to think through questions of collectivity and labor and intellectual history that's not so centered on, you know, singular brains.
2: Yeah, I also love the idea of thinking of the book as a labor history and an intellectual history. And it's also just a little obvious, I guess, but also interesting that we could write it partly the method is based on us being practitioners. And so it's a history by practitioners. Like we get access, we can understand these individual figures teaching and sort of unwind it and decode it and put it in the context of all the other minds they were engaged with and teachers and students they were engaged with because of our own understanding of our own teaching in part, right?
0: I I think that's one of the things that I found so like satisfying and validating about reading this book, even though I'm not in your discipline, that core of valuing teaching, recognizing that the research that we tend to focus on when we think about scholarly work, um, that distinction that we make and the segregation of the idea of what, what scholars do and then the, the jobs that they have that get in the way of this this other, I don't know, higher calling or something, like all of that, has so much been a part of my experience since like getting my first, well, it was in grad school when I taught comp actually at Rutgers. Um, and, and then, you know, from having my first, uh, you know, full-time job that teaching like took over my life. And I would say still today, if I think about like during a term, what my life looks like and what my preoccupations are and, and, like how my days are divided and my attention is divided. Teaching is like the big thing, <laughs> and then mm-hmm. research is like this thing I'm trying to shove in there, and you know I'm slow, like all these things. And so I, I found putting that at the center, just so yeah, I'm saying thank you, I guess, <laughs> um, because I think a lot of us feel I'm, I'm ussing us now, but like a lot of us struggle with that uh, sense that the things that we do day to day, the things that exhaust us so much of the time, but also nourish us, like aren't really considered to be our work.
1: Yeah, I think that makes total sense. I mean, part of what was confusing to us when we sat down to try to think through this teaching research divide is that within our professions, um, and I'm sure this is true of your discipline as well as ours that, you know, it, it feels as though research is what is valued um, and that teaching not as much so. But actually out in public, it fe- it can feel really like the inverse, you know, that the way that most people connect with and think about um, higher education is, is through thinking about classroom teachers. Um, and in many ways, you know, a kind of conservative backlash of late, you know, would, would present uh, scholarship research, particularly research that doesn't immediately lead to some kind of innovation that can be profitable, Mm -hmm. um, is, is devalued, right, Is, is actively being defunded, in fact. So there, you know, we wanted to put teaching at the center, but like, it was also really important to us to kind of say that it's very difficult to, to think about these two things separately. Um, And I think, you know, we all know this to be true. Like if you don't get enough time or support to do research, your teaching does suffer. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's an important, you know, that's an important truth to keep telling over and over again as more and more, Mm -hmm. you know, higher end positions become uh, nominally about teaching. And, you know, without any support, either in terms of time or funding for research. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, I think I've always had the sense too. Laura and I have talked about this a lot that despite the fact and of course, there are ways that different higher ed institutions value or try to value people's teaching. And there are ways that professional organizations or are, or, you know, professional disciplinary affiliations formally and informally value teaching. But for the most part, they don't compared to published research and yet people spend a ton of time and energy (laughs) and you know and passion on teaching and so that's kind of an incredible counterintuitive thing that you know doesn't really it's not really accounted for by most like social scientific frames you could apply (laughs) i think like why do people spend so much time and energy on teaching
0: I really like that moment in the book and the towards the end of the book where you point to, you know, how it's like the reinvention of these things that teachers have been doing throughout, well, throughout the book, but also throughout the 20th century um, in literary studies as like, and giving them new, um, you know, education speak names um, that some of these practices, some of these new best practices have been practices um, all along. But I want to ask a little bit about chronological scope and then the arc, you know, the the story that the book tells over time. Cause it's cause this messiness is there, right? The idea that things that we associate with the post-68 period in your discipline, and it's also true in mine, you know, were already happening before. So you all are messing with the the the, the narrative arc and this the kind of teleologies that people trade in when they're talking about the discipline of literary studies but at the same time and this isn't a criticism like the book is organized roughly chronologically and so i guess i wanted to ask about that like how you think about the messiness and you know whether or not there's like a an arc or or a direction to it over these chapters
2: yeah and it's even more i mean as a historian, you will have noticed this too, even more complicated by the arcs of careers, you know, so we're sort of trying to retread this, this chronology of traditional disciplinary history and literary studies. But we're trying to show that it's messier and that there aren't these kind of Punctual changes of method yeah. that happen decade to decade or century to century. And yet, you know, people like Jay Saunders Redding, his career spans so much of that time, or Josephine Miles, like Redding's career spans like, you know, the 30s through the 70s and 80s. Sure. Miles' career spans the 30s through the 90s, really, <laughs> um, which also completely, I mean, we try to get at some of that in the book, but it also really upsets any sense of. Chronology.
1: Oh, yeah, I think, I mean, the ghostly kind of outline of this book, you were essentially treading, like Rachel said, the same path that um, traditional disciplinary histories, but most notably Gerald Graff's professing literature mm-hmm. um, kind of moves through. So um, it is also, you know, we wanted to tell a chronological story that would seem kind of uncannily familiar, like it would, people would recognize the same eras, um, and the same potential Mm -hmm. shifts between methodologies, but then kind of see it, you know, in a funhouse mirror sort of a way. You know, we initially wanted to move through the 80s and 90s, and we just, you know, couldn't fit it. (laughs) And so we did, we did decide to kind of end roughly around the 70s, um, you know, and around that moment that our discipline does tend to think of, like yours probably does too, as a moment of real, um, not just institutional change, um, the desegregation of Northern universities, you know, the entrance of women, not just into departments where they had been for a long time, but onto the tenure track. People think of that moment as a methodologically innovative moment. Um, when the ways that we read literary texts and the kinds of literary texts that we're reading change at the same time, but what we'd found was that that second part of that story wasn't entirely true that you know a lot of the methods that we think of as as new in the 60s and 70s and the texts that we think of as you know newly read uh, were actually appearing in classrooms much earlier just not the kinds of classrooms that usually figure into disciplinary history
2: and it's true that some a few people have said, oh, you don't have, you're kind of abdicating a kind of historical narratives, book is actually not a history, you're kind of abdicating a historical narrative. I don't think that we're doing that, right? I think that we're mm-hmm. saying that some of the things we think are new in the 60s and 70s happened, at, as Laura just said, in other kinds of institutions, <laughs> in other ways, and in classrooms, right? That doesn't mean that there haven't been changes. But it's also true that in histories of the discipline of literary studies and of kind of intellectual history or institutional history of higher education, there's just so much emphasis on big historical change, you know, and people are so wedded to like narratives about, you know, the German research university model and when it enters, you know, the U.S. collegiate system, et cetera, et cetera. And those are all perfectly valid, but they're just way too dominant in our understandings of higher education and of literary studies in higher education.
0: One of the other things I really enjoyed about the book, I mean, there's this, this argument throughout that the habits that people might have about attributing major shifts in the discipline or innovations come from the Ivies, the big schools, the, these kinds of prestigious centers Um, And that, you know, you all are showing how that story doesn't work, but also the idea that the university is where all of this happens that gets messed with in this book in a really interesting way thinking about the different communities at some point somebody brought this up I don't know if it's or Rachel thinking about the different types of students who are in these classrooms thinking about the types different types of classrooms how some of them are in different types of institutions, uh, you know, public private all of that, but also that that divide that I mean, people insist on now, <laughs> you know, between the university and the real world. Um, and I and I guess I wanted to ask mm-hmm. you about those choices and how that that plays a role throughout the book.
1: The main example of this for us really is the um, extension school, right? You know, we write about T.S. Eliot um, teaching at the University of London Extension School during World War One. Caroline Spurgeon's also teaching there at the same time. You know some of those models for bringing together working class adults and university tutors are e- so much more progressive and interesting than you know even histories of Extension ed mm-hmm. tend to acknowledge. Um, mm-hmm. and so if you're looking at the actual teaching papers, you can kind of see just how much more of the community was involved in these seminars than you would have expected. Um, that was, you know, the first three decades of the 20th century, just in general, are just this like crazy hotbed of, you know, <laughs> mm-hmm. just progressive models for education beyond the university that like even just researching that section of the book was, was really inspiring and kind of, you know, changed, I think, our approach to some of the later chapters as well. And then I think, you know, there's also this way in which, like, the final chapter is on Ortiz and, you know, teaching Native American literature at University of New Mexico and at Marin College. Um, and, you know, he's it was really interesting to look through his papers and to look at the kind of the sorts of comments that he would leave on student papers and things like that. And to realize that his engagement within the university structure, like with his own students was really much more about kind of trying to foster a writerly community outside the university. I wanted to ask you both a broad, probably
0: too broad question about what teaching is in the book and, and the ways that the book is trying to deal with uh, and, and complicate Well, the relationship between teaching and research, these different types of institutions, the chronology and the kind of narrative arc of the discipline, all of these things. But also the question of the relationship between, I don't know, the content of of classes, I guess, is what I want to say, Mm -hmm. you know, canon, curriculum, all of that, and then the the practices, like what happens in the classroom, how classrooms are organized, you know, lectures, seminars, uh, different types of discussion, strategies and ways of reading, collecting data in different types of ways. So, so yeah, if you could both talk about that, the way the book takes on and then kind of messes also with the relationship between, I guess, you know, the content and form of teaching mm-hmm. um, through this archive that you've explored.
2: Yeah, that's a really... A really good and, as you said, big, (laughs) big question. I mean, I think in the beginning of the research, it was one of the things that our own teaching helped us realize was that this like chestnut of higher ed studies that like people used to lecture and that's bad. People used to lecture. That's bad. (laughs) <laughs> and not yeah. doing that is like a constantly moving target. We're always going to be punished for lecturing, whatever that is. Like I know what it is. Some people do it. Most people in the humanities haven't for most of the 20th century. <laughs> you know, um, so just being able to see—I think it took us a little while just to be able to, despite our own evidence of our own teaching, the evidence of our colleagues teaching and our peers teaching, and now our students teaching. You know, it took us a while just to be able to see. As Laura was referring to the experimental 1920s, like. How experimental and progressive 1920s classrooms, humanities or literary studies classrooms were in most places, it seems like. Mm
0: -hmm.
2: And that it didn't actually matter if you were, you know, teaching canonical literature or like Josephine Miles, you know, trying to give first year English 1A comp students a sense of the contemporary literary scene that like you weren't, you know, lecturing necessarily about Virginia Woolf. You might be breaking your students students into groups and like having them diagram the plot of to the lighthouse.
1: Yeah, I think, I mean, in some of the archives that we looked at, we could really, really see that sense in which professors like I.A. Richards or Edith Rickert are just trying to sort of make their classroom spaces of collective experimentation. Like, we're all mm-hmm. going to together do this crazy thing that... <laughs> you know, (laughs) hasn't been done before, except when I did it last semester, but we're going to do it totally differently this semester. (laughs) And everybody is going to really feel like we're engaged on, you know, in (laughs) a collective research project, you know, in the space of the classroom. There was just like so many moments like that, where things that felt really recent, or new, or sort of branded as student centered learning, or, you know, Mm. or even like, recent like digital humanities pedagogy or things like that, you know, where would find stuff and be like, oh yeah, this is just exactly what everyone has been doing forever. And also everyone in every era has been like, oh, we're not going to lecture, you know, <laughs> like as Rachel said, like, <laughs> even that chestnut of higher education yeah. has been a chestnut, you know, for the entire hundred
2: year period, you know. And still your institution is going to email you next week being like, come learn how to flip your classroom on your
1: iPad. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) And I think what's really interesting about this too, is that for the most part, we didn't have access to student work, to student, Hmm. I mean, to student discussion, like to what students were saying in the classroom. I mean, there are some exceptions to that. Like we know a little bit about what Elliot's working-class adult students were writing about. We know a little bit about, you know, how Edith Rickard's students helped her develop essentially, you know, kind of distant reading methods uh, for contemporary literature. We know what I.A. Richard's students were writing about poetry because he lectures about that as well. You know, so it's so interesting that you do get such a sense of how engaging these teachers were trying to be, how, how much they were drawing on their students ideas and preferences and preconceived notions and you know seminar discussion points like you can see that even just from the teaching materials that don't really include mm-hmm. you know student voices I want to ask you
0: both about well it's the I don't know what it's, it's I guess one of the front pages when I when I got the book and I kind of it open and started looking at what I was going to eventually read, I, I got to that on authorship note, and I'm just going to read it, uh, where you where you both say, we have written every line of this book together, and we have elected to list authorship alphabetically. This author order represents neither a hierarchy nor a division of labor. And when I read that last year or sometime, I I thought, oh, I'm going to like this book. <laughs> We're all going to be friends and I'm going to really enjoy this book. I want to ask you about how that worked, like a little bit about the mechanics of it um, and how that felt and, you know, what that meant for both of you, because I also really felt as I was reading the book. I I felt that process and thought about it a lot, especially at some of your funny moments. And, you know, just thinking, I was trying to imagine you, I, I mean, to be clear, listeners, I've not met these two people <laughs> in real life. They've met each other, but I've not met them. But I, I was kind of picturing like, and and imagining like emails or whatever exchanges that you might have about different things. And yeah, and I also feel like that moment at the very beginning of the book sets like a keynote for the project, uh, and how you're looking at the discipline. And I just wonder if I'm right about that, I guess.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I I really think, I hope so. I think so. I mean, I think, and I think that the author note reflects two things. And one, which I think we talked um, before recording a little bit, we should talk about this, like what our collaboration has been like and how Mm -hmm. literally we've written the book. But also two, like a sense that, Institutions will try to hierarchize authorship and ask co-authors to anatomize what parts of the book, like we both in different contexts been asked, okay, so like what chapters, what lines, because the more well known, you know, yeah, methods of co-authorship really maybe maybe do that so that was important too that people mm-hmm. really understand like the book is better because we both wrote it but it's not like half a book in my tenure file you know like that was really important to both of us like we <laughs> each wrote the whole book
0: <laughs> yeah but that math is definitely not um, or that way of imagining work is not how the institutions they don't like it <laughs> no no yeah okay so you traveled together to mm-hmm. these places yeah um always Mm -hmm. yeah
2: every every single archive right Laura we visited
0: I want to watch the making of documentary of this (laughs) because I think it would actually be really fun (laughs) the road trip um and then when you wrote like I don't know this this is really banal but
1: it's like did you did you sit and write together did you I don't know yeah I mean so we we did we um when the book was published I sent a Congratulatory email to my whole department because our office <laughs> walls are like really, really thin. You can hear everything that everybody's doing in their offices, and I said, you know, everyone in this department has just listened for years to this book being written, <laughs> you know. And so you all deserve like the, all the credit for you know its eventual publication for putting up with this. But yes, we we use Skype and Google Docs and have for you know over a decade. So we just, uh, I mean, now we do Zoom, but. You know, we did Skype for years where we just open a window and then have Google Docs open, which, you know, which has always just continued to be the best kind of instantaneous collaborative editing platform or software um, that we can use. And, you know, Rachel is fond of pointing out that even if you tried to do a forensic analysis of (laughs) who had written what, which you can actually do in Google Docs, you can sort of go in and see which, which user typed what, even that wouldn't be... Yeah, representative of people's contributions of our individual contributions, because often someone will get tired and sort of start riffing or dictating orally while the other person, you know, kind of transcribes. So, yeah. And I think like, you know, your your comment about whether this was sort of a little bit of a manifesto also for the project and for, for maybe the discipline, I think, I mean, for sure our work is stronger for us both doing it together. Um, And, you know, that might not be true in all cases, but I think that this is an important and good model for doing scholarship um, Mm -hmm. together. I mean, in a way it just sort of extra, extra folds the editorial process in. It's like a reading group and an editorial process, you know, sort of like kneaded into this like fully laminated dough. Mm -hmm. Um, But also in terms of like career arcs and things like that, like, Mm -hmm. especially for women, It's been so much easier to be self-promoting. Yeah. To really talk in confident ways about your contribution. I think it's been easier for me, I'll just say, you know, as part of a co-authorship.
2: So so much easier um, because you feel like you're promoting something that's like somebody else's and yours and you know, different from either of us. But also, I mean, when we started the project a lot of often more senior people were kind of like, hmm, teaching, that's cute. (laughs) Like, here are some unprestigious places you might consider publishing your work. Um,
0: (laughs) Oh, man. And
2: and I think that having a collaboration and being co-authors helped us continue to value it right we were already i mean we had lots of other support and lots of people who did so much for us so i don't want to like make this like a heroic narrative of just us against the world or whatever cause we had, Like <laughs> so much support it's crazy but when there were these moments of like you can't from a literary studies department or english department write a book that's about teaching and have that you know count for your tenure or count for your whatever um, or count as legitimate scholarship we already had a kind of, you know, community of thought and value yeah. about the project. And that was really, really helpful. Um, but we should go back to the archive. I mean, the archive work too. I just want to underline also because for people doing similar work, it was like incredibly time consuming. We would both travel sure. to every archive and sit together. Like sometimes we would each take a box and we'd do a first round through and then sort of like trade stuff Um, which occasionally made archivists rightly nervous, (laughs) but really looking, I think Laura described this a little bit in the beginning of this conversation, but really looking at documents together in this iterative way and putting a lot of time in and being able then to kind of like bounce our interpretations often of like very, very ephemeral, you know, teaching notes was really helpful.
0: I mean this whole story is just so fascinating and inspiring to me especially as somebody who gets like lonesome writing <laughs> and doing research and and, uh, and sometimes teaching too like just the the collaboration like the buddy story here as part of this project really I love it. I wanted to ask you just about the the illustrations in the book for a second. I felt reading the book like this kind of nostalgia for for, and I and I get like this about archival stuff sometimes, even though I'm not that kind of historian. Like I've never been the like, I touched the document and then I had a moment or whatever. <laughs> like I'm just not that, that person. Um but I do have moments like that. And I I did have moments like that looking at these images. And and thinking about um, is it uh Carolyn Virgin's like, she the one with the nope? The she's yes. the one with the and it, and just being like She's like the Marie Kondo. <laughs> I'm like, I'm like, I'm like just a kind of literary studies. Like, I just was like, I wish I was more like that. But I wondered about that, like the obviously you know how you how and when you're allowed to include illustrations and stuff and i i just wondered about that archival experience and also i guess at the level of like the material experience of these documents like encountering these documents looking at old syllabi and course outlines and you know different course materials the paper of it all but also whether or not
1: that there's some of that nostalgia in the project
0: um for both of you
1: yeah i mean i think there were moments Um, in some of the archives where, in some of the special collections where we would pull something out and just be really moved, you know, (laughs) like Mm -hmm. that sort of, I'm trying to think of some good examples of that.
2: Yeah. Well, just looking at Spurgeon's, I mean, her papers, you don't get your point about Marie Kondo is right. (laughs) Okay. But also her, you know, ability is just like, was overwhelming how moving it is to see like a woman in the nineteen teens who valued teaching, (laughs) you know, um, and was able to value her teacher's teaching. You know, she has all these WP care, her her teacher WP care's lectures that she wrote down and bound and, you know, and beautiful blackish um bluish black leather and then her own in, you know, this reddish maroon leather that kind of became one of the keynotes for the book, you know, as we say in the book, like what if everybody valued their teaching the way she did?
1: Yeah. I can, I was thinking too about Josephine Miles's archive, which, you know, the collection there is not as nicely organized or bound. You know, she has these, you know, she's teaching essentially first year writing for, for decades and um, the notes are pretty truncated. Um, but You can see her doing that thing where she writes herself a little note for like things to do next time. Um, Right. Next term, you know, schedule this paper before the midterm or whatever. And then like, there's a little note that says rouse C's, you know, like, like those like C C grade student, like, you know, figure out a way to kind of like rouse them (laughs) next term. I mean, I have, done that I've made myself little notes about like I gotta remember to do this next time Um, but also just like the the just the volume or the evidence you know of this person who having taught this class for so many decades and having done it differently you know each time uh, is just kind of just you know an astonishing thing to consider especially now during contemporary pandemic teaching where You know, for me, I've been teaching online a bunch, and it takes me so much work to just get a class together to be an asynchronous online course Mm -hmm. that, like, I'm not going to touch it again, you know, for a couple (laughs) of years. Like, the the only way that level of labor makes sense is if you're going to totally reuse everything exactly as you.
0: Mm -hmm. And it doesn't
1: hardly feel like teaching at all, you know, but just sort of thinking about just the evidence of people having done their work, you know, for Mm -hmm. more than half of their lifetimes. So.
0: The past we need now, that conclusion, speaking of being moved. Yeah, I was really struck by the observations that you both make. And then, you know, Rachel, you talking about your working on higher education, like that all makes so much sense uh, reading the whole book, but especially that last part. And yeah, I guess I wanted to ask you both about the ways that this book, this project comes out of, shaped by, and is kind of a response to... The contemporary, again, this is enormous, but the contemporary, like problems, debates, arguments, fights. I don't want to say method wars, but there I said it. Um, <laughs> all of that, uh, I muted that on Twitter. I was just like, I don't know what you all are really talking about, but I don't, I'm bored. <laughs> I I don't want to hear any more about this. I follow so many literary studies people on Twitter and I was like, I don't fully get this. I don't think I'm, I have the time to catch up on whatever's going on here. So I'm just muting it. Yeah. So I, I guess that, and then of course the now has changed since you, Mm -hmm. did you turn Mm -hmm. this in during the pandemic or did Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, congratulations on all sorts of friends. I guess to narrow it down, maybe a little bit who you hope will read this book and you know how you're addressing the kind of contemporary discipline contemporary readers writers researchers teachers uh in in your discipline and then yeah whatever may have shifted during this crazy time that we're still
1: in mm-hmm. yeah this is such a tough question to answer right now just because yeah. so much has changed even in the last like five years like mm-hmm. i really feel like there's institutional differences like you know i don't want to get into all this on this public podcast but like I mean my my department of English you know is not gonna survive in the same form you know in any way in the decade that we're in right now so there were moments when we were writing this where we were like oh is this gonna be an elegy like is this gonna be like read as an elegy and of course we hope not and we we also fantasized about writing a coda that was sort of like how to use this book to do your scholarship how to use this book to talk to your provost how to use this book (laughs) to talk to your you know college president or local newspaper or board of trustees or whatever you know like because there are clearly what we're trying to do is kind of revalue in a way um what it is that we do Mm -hmm. and um and who all has done it and to really think about what the future of higher ed looks like and try to find a mirror for that back into the past um Mm -hmm. And strengthen all these positions and do it in a way that kind of does speak to multiple kind of audiences or or, or really it's mostly for practitioners. But but is keeping in mind that as practitioners, we have moments where we want to speak this in a different way to different audiences. Um, So and then, you know, in terms of method. We say that we're not engaged in the method wars and we don't, you know, really like take up arms in the method wars, um, as we say. But it is the case that our discipline has had an overwhelmingly strong account of aesthetic formalism and, you know, classroom based close reading of really good literary texts. You know, we have a long and strong account of how we do that, why we do that and, you know, and what's important about that and what's valuable about that. But we don't really have an account for this very, very long and uh, robust history of teaching other kinds of texts um, and teaching about the history of writing itself or even like the kind Mm -hmm. of material history of like how people came to be authors and how they came to be valued and how the canons came to be formed as such. That was a finding for us, you know, like realizing how many classrooms, not just at HBCUs or working men's colleges, were kind of focused on sort of the history of literature, how it got made, you know. It is a little bit of a method war contribution in the sense that we want to really start to have a much stronger account of that form of teaching.
2: Yeah, yeah, I really agree with all that. And I would add, um, going back Roxanne, to how you were thinking about it as a labor history. And I add this, even though Laura's the person who's really much more of the organizer and person involved with organized labor than I am. Um, but one of the positive things that's happened in the last five years is that higher ed, higher ed labor organizing yes. is being revivified. And it's exciting. And contingent faculty and tenure line faculty and staff and faculty and staff and faculty and students in some very, very small way, if this book helps people, you know, see what their work is labor, you know, or understand teaching as their work, um, or just have a story about how teaching Mm -hmm. is their work, that seems helpful to us, I think.
0: Well, I want to say two things. One is that if you want to like, do a podcast series of like, follow up, (laughs) guides, how to talk to your pro. I will absolutely be your roadie for that. So volunteering <laughs> for that. I think that would be really cool. Like five minutes with <laughs> Rachel about, you know, but also the other big thing I want to say is, yeah, thank you so much for this book. I learned so much about, well, your discipline and, and its history from reading this book. And it gave me so much to think about as a researcher, reader, writer, teacher. And uh, yeah, I just wanna thank you both so much for speaking with me about it. Thank you so much, Roxanne, this was really great.
2: Yes, thank you, this was so much fun.